back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 18, The Ireland Interlude, Part 2. Last week, I left you in suspense as the British Parliament decided to implement martial law in the areas most affected by the revolution in Ireland. With a freer hand and still smarting from an ambush that left 17 oxies dead, the British on the ground resolved to hit back harder than the volunteers could ever hope to. On the evening of December 11th, 1920, a half-dozen IRA members launched another ambush on the Oxys, this time within the city of Cork itself. Two vehicles were transporting a small unit of Oxys out of their barracks when the volunteers opened up with guns and grenades. A dozen British were wounded and another killed, with the IRA squad managing to retreat into the night. Now, this is the moment that the ongoing guerrilla war transformed into a more open one. The Oxy's commander, that very same night, deployed his guys and a detachment of regular British soldiers and sent them to make a show of excessive force in the surrounding neighborhoods of Cork. The troops started breaking into houses and setting them on fire. The only dignity they showed the occupants was rounding them up so as to avoid burning them alive. Other groups started smashing up trams and roughing up passengers. Black and tans got in on the action and went wild up and down the city streets, shooting off guns and beating anybody they could get their hands on. In just a couple of hours, shops were being looted and burned down, and you really have to feel for the city's fire department in this circumstance. They dutifully mobilized in order to put out the fires, only to find soldiers running around, setting off incendiary bombs, and dumping gasoline into the flames. As the evening dragged on, the black and tans and oxies even started rounding on the firefighters, too. The firefighters were shot at, had their hoses cut, and in some cases were forcibly detained. By sunrise, five acres of the city had been burned down, including public offices like the city hall. It was highly likely that while the incident might not have been planned for that specific night, that it had been planned to occur at some point. The local oxies in Cork had used the fire-starting tactic on individual buildings in weeks past, and the deliberate choosing of homes and businesses in which to burn down spoke to a much more deliberate action than one resulting from the bloodlust of revenge. Nevertheless, the English authorities tried to posit that the fires had somehow spread on their own accord, ignoring the fact that the fires were not one single conflagration, and that a river ran through the middle of town, which you would think would stop a fire from spreading to the other side, but not in this case. The next day, a group of black and tans in Dublin marched down the streets with burnt corks affixed to their caps to mock the populace. The British government later launched an inquiry, but refused to share their findings and wound up suspending a single RIC officer for the entire fiasco. At this point, tensions had gotten so high in Ireland and in the British leadership that concessions were not favored on either side, even though the situation had clearly gotten out of control. The Oxys, the Black and Tans, and even the regular English troops increasingly slipped the leash and acted with impunity. They couldn't uncover the IRA via subterfuge or informants. They would simply begin tearing the country down. All through the back half of 1920, the British in the IRC had grown increasingly disillusioned with doing things even under the pretense of by the book. Doing things properly in their eyes left themselves terribly exposed and did little to suppress the volunteers. As a result, violent reprisals became unspoken policy just a strategy to what was now fully a war and not a peacekeeping action. This put Prime Minister Lloyd George in a terribly vulnerable position. 
The people in Great Britain proper were unenthusiastic over the whole affair and didn't support the intensification of the war, while so much was still to be addressed back home. British press made no effort to explain away or suppress the news of atrocities coming out of Ireland. So the average Briton on the street was increasingly sympathetic to the Irish struggle for independence. Lloyd George, though, wasn't able to take the easy way out favored by the Liberals and just grant them their autonomy. Politically, he was still joined symbiotically with the Conservatives, who, as the Empire's greatest champions, were loath to let the old colony go. And they were not about to let that empire be diminished after a piddling two-year remove from their greatest victory. And this is all assuming that Lloyd George wanted to make a deal at this point himself personally. Part of being a political chameleon meant that his opinion on the subject went back and forth, depending on the events of the day and who he had been talking to. On the eve of the burning of Cork, he offered the hollow prospect of negotiation, while maintaining that any agreement would have to leave the UK united as it was, which of course was totally unacceptable to the Doyle. This was the same day that the British authorities in Ireland instituted martial law in areas of the country, so he was pretty guilty of talking out of both sides of his mouth when it came to Ireland. Images of the hollowed-out remains of Cork might make you think that the British would reconsider their policy, and in a way it did. They decided that they just needed a bigger stick when it came to Ireland and extended martial law to more parts of the country. So, going into 1921, the cycle of violence picked up steam again. Every day brought fresh news of a bombing, a shooting, occasionally even a kidnapping. In the first three months of 1921, 174 British troopers were killed. Morale among the uniformed Britons started to collapse. Meanwhile, the Irish firmly saw themselves as legitimate soldiers fighting for a legitimate nation against a foreign occupier. Lloyd George and his cabinet tried to determine what it would take to get a grip on the situation. British generals advised that their deployed troops were exhausted and demoralized, that the whole body in Ireland needed to be rotated out and replaced. The problem with this, though, was finding a spare 80,000 soldiers to replace the ones in Ireland. The question was asked what it would take to simply sweep through every house, every barn, and generally every nook and cranny on the island to flush out the IRA. The solution offered was to send in 100,000 fresh soldiers, turn the island into a police state, and deal with cyclical rebellions going forward. Only Churchill supported that solution because, of course, he'd be the only one to give that idea a try. All through 1920, there had been off and on back-channel uh, negotiations to start negotiations among Irish and British agents, but up to this point, they really hadn't produced anything. And ironically, the way forward towards even beginning to make a peace might have sprung from a fairly stinging IRA defeat. While the British were certainly suffering from low morale, the Irish were in an increasingly worse way themselves. The ever bigger attacks on the British weren't just a sign of increasing IRA strength, but also they were an attempt to strike the British directly while they were still able. Ever since the introduction of British recruits into the IRC, the Irish leadership were in a race against time. They didn't know how far the British could or would go in their attempts to hang on to the island, and every day that passed saw more boots on the ground. The attacks on British intelligence operations, the burning of IRC barracks, these were all attempts to slow the British marshalling their full strength. 
The bigger attacks on the RIC were meant to try and force the British to take a pause and consider whether it was worth continuing the fight. Fortunately for the volunteers, the British troops had every intent to do just that. To that end, forced a war of attrition the Irish were ill-equipped to engage in. While the fighting intensified, this exposed the IRA more and more to the engagements with superior forces they had been trying to avoid. Their numbers were slowly ground down until by mid-1921, the organization was down to only a couple thousand active fighters. By that time, the British had rebuilt their spy rings and were actively hunting both the IRAs and the Doyle's leadership. By May 1921, there was a hint of desperation among the Irish, and again they sought a big blow to force the British to conclude the fight wasn't worth it and come to the table. Michael Collins and the IRA in Dublin decided to storm the customs house there with 120 men and burn the place down. This would be an operation of broad daylight and in the city center. They managed to burn the customs house all right, and with that having been accomplished, were now the juiciest target the Oxys could have asked for. A unit of them were already on hand in the area, and they swooped in on the IRA members with both troopers and armored cars. For the volunteers, six were killed, 12 were wounded, and 70 captured. It proved a crushing blow to an organization already dealing with manpower issues and highlighted the exact limits to which they could actually engage the British. Additionally, with supplies to carry on the war starting to run low in the wake of intensified operations, the Doyle started to kick around ideas for winding the fight down finally. It was also around this time that an act of the British Parliament for the previous year went into effect. Last episode, I talked about how before World War I, the British liberals were convinced that the Irish would have to be granted some degree of autonomy. Conventional wisdom among the British was that the Irish would get their own parliament to manage strictly Irish affairs. Think how the Scottish Parliament works today managing local Scottish affairs while deferring the highest national issues to the National Parliament in London. That was the idea, at least. The actual Irish were not terribly thrilled at the prospect of still being subordinate to the imperial government in London. And, of course, World War I put all those plans on hold entirely. After the war, Parliament did take the issue back up again, this time with the added wrinkle that the inhabitants of Northern Ireland desperately wanted to avoid being lumped in with the greater southern part of the island. The reasons for this are probably familiar to the modern listener. The geographically much smaller unit of Northern Ireland was a primarily Protestant Christian area, while the rest of the nation was Catholic. But at this point, it wasn't as simple as religion either. The Northerners were also well disposed to the UK and did not desire to leave it. The shipyards of Belfast did big business within the greater UK, and as a consequence had deeper economic links than elsewhere in Ireland. This would mean the six counties of Northern Ireland would be something of a bastion of British support all through the War of Independence. Not to say the area wasn't contested at all, the rebels wanted the whole of Ireland to break away, Regional differences be damned. Scores of people still died in the streets as the Unionists and IRA went tit-for-tat when it came to violence, and a larger downturn in the British economy hit the shipyards of Belfast particularly hard, causing people to resent the IRA destabilizing their lives at some of their most vulnerable moments. Great tragedy was that the struggle for independence had the effect of pushing the two regions away from each other. In January 1921, the Doyle responding to northern support of the British, ordered a boycott on northern Irish businesses, 
creating a hard economic line between the two regions. This served to drive the Northerners still further into the arms of the British. Once the issue of Irish home rule was taken up again in London, the idea steadily gained traction amongst the distinctly non-Irish policymakers. The final legislation, approved on December 23, 1920, came just as the war was starting to really heat up. Its provisions certainly added fuel to the separatists' fire. It called for not one, but two local Irish parliaments within the greater UK, one representing the South and the other the North. This obviously created a situation that would extend far beyond even the larger story I'm telling. And just in case you've ever wondered, this is how the whole Ireland proper, Northern Ireland mess got started. There were certainly questions about how the elections could even be held, seeing as how parts of the country were active war zones. However, the actual elections to decide these two parliaments wound up being held on the 24th of May, 1921. And a rather bloody silver lining by this time, the bloodlust on both sides had faded somewhat, and the elections were able to be held without gunfire or explosions. The results were hilariously lopsided in the South, with Sean Fain getting 124 out of 128 seats. The North was closer, but dominated by anti-separatist sentiment, with the Unionists getting 40 seats to Sean Fain's 12. Fun electoral fact, uh, men like De, De Valera, Collins, and others were actually elected to seats in both parliaments. So now there's a weird situation in which a rebel government just won elections to make them the legitimate government within the imposed home rule system. The members of Sean Fain rejected this arrangement, and the UK official parliament never met in the South, but they did use it to their advantage in presenting themselves as the true government of the Irish, which would help both sides in the event that negotiations would actually get started at some point. This prospect was actually helped along by King George V of the United Kingdom, as he was making a special visit to the Northern Irish Parliament, which, unlike the Southern one, was definitely meeting officially. Since the latter part of 1920, the King had come to the conclusion that the war in Ireland was not going well and that seeing as how the Irish were his subjects, and ergo also his responsibility, that the conflict should be wound down. Well, at this point in British history, he did not possess the power to dictate policy. His opinion could not be ignored entirely. On June 22nd, the king inaugurated the parliament and delivered a rousing speech, calling for a halt to the violence, as well as reconciliation and forgiveness between all the Irish. He smartly asked them to look beyond divisions of parliament, and for everyone to act in concert for the benefit of their mutual homeland. It was a good move, probably inserted by one General Smuts, who had reviewed the speech. Smuts was a South African leader who, once upon a time, had fought against the British Empire in his own rebellion, before reconciling himself to it after being beaten beaten. So he knew a thing or two about making up. Anyway, the speech was a hit, and the mood in Ireland was, as a whole among the majority of people was for the leaders to work out some solution. The king was quick to pick up on this change of sentiment, and once back in London, leaned in on Lloyd George to not screw this opportunity up. His case was backed up by English opinion, swinging further against the continuation of the fighting. Amongst the liberals and labor, there had always been strong reservations about the war, and among common people, this sentiment was more pronounced. Already mentioned, the English press weren't too shy about publishing the excesses of their irregular troops deployed in Ireland, and as the action got bloodier, so too did the stories. In February 1921, the Archbishop of Canterbury himself denounced the fighting as morally unjust on the side of the British. The Conservatives, most hostile to the idea of an independent Ireland, 
also started accepting the idea of some kind of separation. By the time the king made a speech, popular sentiment amongst the people and the political leadership was finally overwhelming enough for peace to be given a chance. The first step was taken on July 11th, when a truce and an agreement to negotiations was accepted by both sides. Now would come the awkward and prickly scene of an oppressed people meeting face-to-face with their oppressors and negotiate the terms of their freedom. The initial British offer was pretty straightforward and relied somewhat on precedent. Southern Ireland would be granted a dominion status on a similar level to Canada and Australia. They would be autonomous, yet also still wired into the greater imperial system and still subjects to the British crown. Northern Ireland would have an election to decide which way it would go. The Irish, for their part, were leery about this proposal, for good cause. The Dominion status was not full independence, and was an ambiguous nomenclature that had so far been reserved for willing partners of the UK, which the members of the Doyle were certainly not willing partners. For the other nations, the relationship between the UK and whatever Dominion was in question ultimately rested on how useful they were to each other. The UK would always seek to keep its charges close, as they were economically valuable, and as World War I proved, they were indispensable to the defense of the Greater Empire. For the Dominions, being plugged into the Greater Imperial Network was often a boon, and having that empire as a shield from other threats could not be discounted. The Irish, though, didn't see things that way. The sheer closeness of Ireland to the UK and the disparity in size and power meant that the UK was liable to be constantly interfering in Irish affairs. And the fact that Northern Ireland would definitely remain in the UK under the plan proposed by the British meant that there would always be a base of operations in which to launch said interference. They needed to have full independence of the entire United Ireland in order to secure true autonomy. This created an impasse that would take months to resolve. In fact, it wouldn't be until October that the final conference to decide Ireland's fate would begin. The negotiations would take place in London, and would oftentimes take place within Churchill's dining room, which may seem a little bit informal, but the more relaxed atmosphere and the inevitable drinks had the effect of actually soothing the ill will the two sides might otherwise have held for each other. Another detail that helped ease the conference was, oddly enough, the presence of Michael Collins. The volunteer veteran had resisted joining the Irish delegation for the obvious reason he was much more the soldier than the diplomat. But de Valera had insisted, probably because his one-time friend was now increasingly a rival, at least in de Valera's mind. Collins had developed his own notions of leadership during the war and was increasingly comfortable with asserting himself among the other Irish leaders, which proved to be threatening for his colleagues in the Doyle. He had been the driving leader among the volunteers, he occupied political leadership positions including Minister of Finance, and many of the factions among the revolutionaries were personally loyal to him. By being made a delegate to the peace negotiations, Collins could be blamed for the conference's failure, or in the event of success, could be blamed for any unpleasant compromises the group would have to make in order to secure a deal. De Valera, though, could wash his hands of it entirely if he just stayed back home. Collins went along with the deal, as he had grown weary of the years living underground and having the friends around him get picked off in the violence. Plus, he himself had had way too many close calls and might have been looking for a way out. He had given the cause all that he had, short of his own life, of course, and he saw little reason why not to call it while they still had a functioning nation left to fight for. Which goes to show that sometimes the best person to end a war 
is someone who has so much first-hand experience that they are fed up with it. Lloyd George, for his part, saw a chance to pull a little diplomatic divide and conquer among the Irish. Those close to de Valera were going to urge a unified and totally separate Ireland, but others, like Collins, could find an autonomous dominion acceptable. He figured they may even give up on their protests over Northern Ireland in the bargain. In November, he cornered the Irish moderates among the delegation into supporting an independent commission to allow the locals of Northern Ireland to decide their own boundaries. Then after a grace period, they would then democratically decide whether to go with Ireland or the UK. This was perfect for Lloyd George, as it not only punted the ball further down the field, it almost guaranteed Ulster would remain with the UK. Plus, the commission to decide on marking the, the new boundary would be UK-North Irish controlled. Now, Collins might not have been a politician, but he wasn't naive, and he saw this plan for what it was and called out the English. Lloyd George countered by using the specter of his government falling in the aftermath of the negotiations falling apart and a Tory replacement as leverage. The Conservatives took power, then the war would likely pick back up. Back home, de Valera heard which way the negotiations were headed and started making noises about trying to limit the relationship of the king with the future Ireland which, while the relationship would have been symbolic, the questioning of it was an attack on British pride. This attempt to provoke the British might have worked a little too well, and on December 5th, 1921, they forced a showdown in the negotiations. Lloyd George had gotten the Irish delegation at various points to agree in principle to most of what he wanted. Now it was time to accept his ultimatum. Ireland would be a dominion. The issue of Northern Ireland would be settled later, and the Irish would be considered subjects of the king. He dramatically pulled two letters out to be sent to the Prime Minister of Northern Ireland. One letter read that the negotiations were a success, the new age for Ireland was at hand. The other read that the issue would be decided by a full-scale war. Lloyd George demanded an immediate decision as to which letter he was going to send out. The Irish, seeing this as their chance to grab autonomy even under duress, broke down and took it. As you might imagine, given the circumstances of Lloyd George dictating terms, the agreement set off a firestorm back in Ireland. De Valera and his inner circle declined to back it, though they did not prevent it from going before the Doyle to be ratified. Now the scene changed to the hardline Irish versus the moderate Irish. The hardliners were operating from a disadvantage, though, as the Doyle was due to consider the agreement on December 8th, days after the public announcement that a peace accord had been reached. I don't know if you've ever told a war-weary public that the conflict so plaguing them had been resolved, and then tried to turn around and say, no, it wasn't really true, it wasn't resolved at all. Well, it probably wouldn't work out well for you. And it didn't work out well for the hardliners in this case. On January 7th, the Doyle agreed to the Treaty 64-57. A close loss for the hardliners, but a loss nevertheless. And de Valera resigned his leadership position afterwards. So the war for independence was effectively over. And while the controversies of autonomy in Northern Ireland were far, far from over, this chapter had ended. The conflict had come at an awkward time for the UK, fresh from at least a qualified victory in the Great War. The empire had been strong, yet exhausted. Now it had to reckon with the breakaway of a core part of its home territory. And while you could accurately call the rule of the island colonial, this was not some random acquisition from halfway around the world that had been lost. One of the oldest conquests of the UK had broken away. And while its economic and strategic value wasn't so great as it might have been at one time, it was still a loss. 
The silver lining was that it would get to keep Ulster and the shipyards located there, as well as the rest of Northern Ireland. With that bright spot aside, this was coming during a critical phase when the world was in dire need of fresh leadership. And instead of being able to commit to reinforcing the emerging liberal order, the UK was stuck in a counterinsurgency within its borders for years. And as we shall see in our next, more international segment, this wasn't the only police action demanding Lloyd George's attention. For the British public, it really was kind of a disillusioning conflict. Their sympathies had been with the Irish underdogs. And as you might have noticed, much of the narrative of the war was set from the Irish perspective, which would have been similar to how the average Briton heard about it too. This is an odd case where the home audience was getting more of an outsider's perspective than their own government's version of events. It resulted in a public questioning their leaders to an ever larger degree. Now, this is where I'll leave the Irish. Their part in the story is about served. They will never become a partnership-minded dominion like Canada, and with time they will continue to deliberately drift away from the UK. De Valera did not take the treaty very well, and helped back the hardliners in a revolt against the new Irish government, sparking a fresh round of civil war. Collins would be there to resist him, with unexpected support coming from the UK. Wishing for a peaceful dominion on their doorstep, the British would supply arms to the moderate factions to help put down the new insurrection. Collins himself would, in a few months, be caught up in an ambush and murdered, a victim of a hit like so many he himself had ordered in the past. The hardliner insurrection would, would eventually be put down, and again Cork would be stormed, this time by their fellow Irishmen. De Valera would spend some time in the political wilderness, but once his probationary period was over, he moved back into a position of national leadership. And on this ambiguous note, I'll leave you for the week. Next time, we'll overshoot our return to Britain and wind up in the midst of a war in Anatolia as the British get drawn into the Turkish War for Independence. I'll see you then, and as always, Thank you very much for listening.